This podcast is produced on the land of the Wujak Noongar people, and we want to pay our respect to the elders past, present and emerging. Welcome back to the Australian shores, Courtney. Thank you. It's, it's good to be back. I am... Um, uh, I'm going to start off with with a story. Uh, so, um, I've I've only been back for maybe 24 hours, and I was meant to get back on Sunday, 10 a.m., and I ended up back in Perth on Monday, 6:30 p.m. So everything was delayed by 30 hours. So I'm very glad to be home. Um, and we ended up having like six hours in Cairns and then six hours in Melbourne and had to do overnight stays in, in Tokyo and, and Cairns while we were trying to come home. So I am very glad to be back here and back in the studio. Okay. So t- talk us through what happened. So you, you were in Japan on holiday. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yes, I've been in, been in Japan on holiday and um, we, we got to the airport and our flight had been delayed by roughly 12 hours. Um, and our original plan was to fly Tokyo to Cairns to Perth and uh, we'd get home Sunday 10 a.m. Um, the flight was delayed 12 hours um, and we had to find our own accommodation uh, overnight, which ended up being quite a hassle because it all booked out near the airport. So we ended up travelling an hour or so, $200 uh, taxi ride um, to, to our accommodation, which ended up being uh a very interesting hotel, um, which we were not too happy about. And mm. then uh, back to the airport, flew to Cairns, uh, no food, landed at 10.30 p.m., um, had to go to a hotel because Cairns Airport closes overnight. Uh, we got three hours sleep, ended up back at the airport at 4.30 a.m., uh, onto a flight to Melbourne, uh, had to wait at Melbourne Airport for six hours, and then onto a flight back to Perth. Um, there was a few of us in the same situation, so we we all bonded. Um, but we yeah, we eventually got back home. <laughs> Sounds like a horror ending to a well, what I'm assuming was a good holiday. Yes, the rest of the holiday was absolutely fantastic. Um, but yes, I think uh, my partner and I are both very happy to be home now. <laughs> <laughs> and was this was this a result of airlines oh. just having to cancel flights and that sort of thing? Yeah, so essentially I think what happened was the the plane that we were going to use from Tokyo to Cairns uh, was late um, and by the time that it got to Tokyo there were, there were curfews in place mm-hmm. um, so you can't fly after a certain time um, and you can't land in airports within a certain time as well. So because of those curfews, um, they had to push back the the flight, so it was just about kind of management of of other planes, really. Okay, yeah. I, look, I think yeah. any, anyone that's done international travel enough has probably gone through something like that. Um, but yeah, it's very frustrating. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, we we're, were in good spirits, so it was okay. And someone could look after our cat, so that's all that mattered. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, well, it's nice to have you back. But the good thing is, thank you. But yeah, the good thing is that I I made it back for this podcast. So, yeah, um, and it's a good one coming up. That's important. Yeah. So, who who do we have today? It is. Uh, Well, we have we have a a big list of people today. We have four guests. Um, We have uh, Claire, Christy, Blake, and Jenny, Um, and they all have a different 
histories and uh, professional lives or advocacy lives within the field of obesity and weight management as well as weight stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yes. I, th- I think they do a pretty good job of introducing themselves as well in our conversation, so we won't go they into do. too much I, detail. I, I don't remember their, yeah. The ins and outs, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't um, remember their um their job titles and all that sort of stuff. So Yeah. So this this episode's probably the one where I have learned the most because I, it's not an area I knew much about. Um, which, mm. as but as people will hear by the end, you know, is important because I think the general public need to know a bit more about this um, and how obesity and weight stigma that often accompanies obesity uh, the impacts on the lives of people and the health of people um, who experience it. Uh, and we we do these people are all experts in different ways um they have different knowledge and different experience to that they speak from uh and yeah really fascinating so absolutely yeah. so yeah uh, we look forward to you to you listening to the conversation and and we hope that you guys learn something too get started if everyone's ready um yes welcome everyone to the podcast i'll get you to introduce yourselves um and that way it'll be easier just to get a bit of background on everyone um do we do you want to start christy yeah sure um so hi everyone i'm christy law i am a dietitian by training um, and currently a phd candidate with the george institute for global health in sydney my background is I've worked in as a dietitian on community dietetics and public health nutrition practice in Western Australia uh, for about, oh gosh, I don't know how long it was, probably about 10, at least 10 years, mm-hmm. um, and as well as doing a bit of uh, uh, work in the USA. And currently my PhD is focused on food prescription programs for diet-related conditions. So looking particularly at it for type 2 diabetes, um, its impact, as well as how we could possibly embed it into the healthcare system here for wider food uh, health policy and healthcare reform. Oh, very good. Um, Jenny, what about you? Oh, hi, I'm a single mother of two children, um, worked in the government for many years. I've had the fight of obesity for a long time and trying to gain healthcare and health support um, has been yeah, a real journey and I felt that it was important that I joined all these groups to try and improve things. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Blake? Uh, yeah, hi everyone. <clears throat> My name is Blake Lawrence and I'm a researcher and lecturer at Curtin University uh, in the School of Population Health. So I teach into the uh, psychology discipline and I teach undergraduate students um, how to improve psychological research methods. But the focus of my research over the past few years has been related to the psychological and social predictors of obesity with a focus on weight bias and weight stigma. Um, so, And I also have a previous lived experience of obesity as well. So right through from my early childhood to adolescence and early adulthood, I uh, was living with overweight and obesity. Um, so I think that's some of the intrinsic motivation I have, uh, to pursue this area of research now through my work. 
Thank you. And uh, last but not least, Claire. Thank you. I'm Claire Mullen. I work at Health Consumers Council and I have been there um, for about four and a half years. And since that time, we've been working with the WA Health Department and the WA Primary Health Alliance to bring the voices of health consumers and people with lived experience to the work being done in the area of improving access to services for people impacted by overweight and obesity. And I have my own lived experience in that space too. Mm, Okay, thanks very much for those introductions. I'm just going to pause the recording and turn on the echo cancellation because I can hear a little bit of echoing going on. So just one second. Excellent. So thanks very much for those introductions, everyone. That's really great. There's a real diversity of uh, experience and knowledge uh, amongst you all. So it's going to be a really interesting conversation. Um, I thought we'd just start off with uh, just talking about what weight, the concept of weight stigma and what it is and, and you know how it manifests. Um, I don't know who would like to go first, but happy to hear from any of you. I'm happy to talk. Okay, thanks, um, Jenny. Weight stigma, it actually feeds the disease. So it prevents you from seeing seeking health services. It prevents you from accessing um other services and resources because you know you're going to get this attitude. There's this face on people when you first meet them um, of disgust and repulsiveness when they see you and you know they're looking at you as an obese person, nothing else. And to get past that is very hard. Once they have that first impression of you, you then have to try and win them over to get them to understand what your health needs are and what your services that you're seeking. And this is a battle you fight every um, every minute of the day. And not only that, you're fighting your own inner demons all the time with the you know 24-7 of your weight, not eating food, eating the right foods, exercising. And if you have this with health concerns and problems and you're trying to seek health care in other um medical conditions, your obesity always outweighs it. It it always cancels out any other care that you are seeking because they are always looking at that and they don't look any further. So I find it really frustrating going to a doctor and talking to them about, um, which you'll hear about later when I read my um, dialogue, about a wasping, which actually turned into a huge drama um, because I just couldn't get past my obesity. And every time I have a health scare or something goes wrong, they don't look at those um, complications. And then I get more complications and they say, well, when you lose weight, then we'll deal with this, we'll deal with that. Um, but basically that's just bobbing you off and you're never going to get treated. So you suffer a lot of pain and you either... Um, become socially inept and you stay away from the world or you get angry and you argue a lot. Uh, It's a real battle personally and physically trying to get people to understand you when you need care. So it's almost like this uh, cultural perspective that obesity and being overweight is equal to things that are bad and it's the the thing that needs to be treated first compared to everything else. Is that right? 
it's a social stigma which has been there in our culture for so long from life beginner ads telling Norm, well, just exercise more and don't put food in your mouth. And with our community believing that and medical professionals are part of that community and if they're reading books or were studying back 30 years ago, it was called a lifestyle choice. It was not called a disease. And the definition of disease is a condition that affects your body and causes certain afflictions, which um, we need to use the word disease when we say obesity and stop saying life choice because it's not a life choice. It was a life choice. You know, it'd be me not, I don't want to go to the nightclub tonight. You know, it's just a decision. But my brain, my body, my chemicals, everything in my makeup is telling me you need to eat. I even get pain from not eating. I get distressed. My emotions become messed up. Everything, my body is fully affected by obesity and not eating or eating and what you eat. And it also affects those around you, and I'm well aware of that. So it's something we need to look at in the medical profession. What are we going to call this? Are we going to call this a disease? Or are we going to keep on just... Obesity is a really harsh word. It comes from the Latin word to gnaw um, <laughs> and to be excessive. So in itself, it's a word which is really distressing. Mm. And maybe we need to look at that. I don't know what we can come up with, but I do think if we call obesity a disease it would be a lot more helpful. Yes. So I know in some of the branches of medicine, there are uh, things such as metabolic syndrome and, and stuff like that that have a more kind of scientific name that are essentially kind of a, a marker of obesity, if you like. Um, but I also understand that there's um, a lot of psychology involved in this issue as well, which is what you were sort of talking about, Blake. I don't know if you wanted to speak to that as one of the kind of underlying issues here as well. Yeah, that's right. And I think that kind of follows on from what Jenny was saying is that as she's speaking about sort of how obesity is encompassing sort of her whole body and her psychology and the social determinants. And I think that's why the research that we're doing now is trying to show that the simplistic advice and attitude that was given out to people for the past 30 or 40 years about if you just change your diet and if you just exercise more, you will lose weight, is just, it's basically completely failed because if that advice was going to work, it would have worked 20 or 30 years ago. But we've only ever seen the prevalence of overweight and obesity continue to increase in Australia and globally. So, now the research that we're doing is trying to show that we really need to start thinking about the underlying psychological and social determinants that contribute to why people gain weight. And there's lots of research now that shows that the really sort of early life events that occur in a child's life are very strong predictors of whether they're going to gain weight later in life. And things like childhood trauma, socioeconomic disadvantage, um, sort of like a disharmonious environment in the home, all of these factors can directly contribute to why people will gain weight sort of during adolescence. And then if they've started to gain weight during adolescence, they're often then exposed to a lot of bullying in the school. And then that feeds back into their sort of health and lifestyle behaviours. They may begin to then use food to cope. 
which then leads to greater weight gain and then so on. And then they go on to develop obesity. So if we don't begin to acknowledge some of these underlying psychological and social issues that are affecting people, basically this continued advice that often, unfortunately, a lot of GPs continue to espouse is they'll tell their patients, if you just change your diet and if you just exercise, you'll start to lose weight. But they're ignoring, it's like, there's so many other reasons as to why people may turn to food as a coping mechanism. It's not just about the fact that they're just choosing to do it every day. So I think it's really important that we begin to talk about a lot of these underlying psychological and social factors that are contributing to obesity. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I'd be interested to hear how that uh, intersects with your work, Christy, because you're mostly focused on the diet side of things. Is that right? Sure. Uh, yeah. So as a dietitian, obviously, I'll field of practice looking and supporting people uh, with what they eat Um, but if I just like to circle back something that both um, you know as Jenny was sharing her experience and Blake was highlighting those wider determinants of health you know the psychological the social environmental because that narrative isn't spoken about when it comes to obesity that perpetuates the weight stigma because which essentially is when people have negative attitudes, they have discrimination or, um, you know, biases towards people who have larger bodies. Um, And so certainly when it comes to diet, you know, it's actually something as a dietitian, uh, it can, we have to be really mindful in our practice as well that food is so, has so much meaning to people. You know, everybody eats and it's more than just, what you eat. It also is about what it means to you. There's cultural aspects of food. There's a lot of, you know, social, emotional aspects of food. And so how it intersects with as a dietitian, I think it's really important that we as professionals who our expertise is in the area of eating and food and nutrition are not people who perpetuate this notion of going, oh, well, if we just improve your diet and if you just make these changes that I recommend you, then you'll be fine. And if and, you know, if you aren't seeing changes because you're failing on following our advice. No, that's not correct. Dietitians, we are, we are one part of a multifaceted approach that needs to happen when we're looking at addressing overweight and obesity in the population. I like to say that as dietitians, our role is as supports and as coaches, you know, we come and provide um that nutrition expertise and that external support for people who are at a point where they want to make behaviour changes or dietary changes so that we can come alongside them and support them in a very individualised, tailored way. Um, But it isn't the one simple solution to that person. You know, there is also needing to be other wider changes in our environments, our food environments, our, you know, the accessibility of healthy food, the policies that we make to support people, we need to have those wider changes happen as well if we are actually going to start to reverse that trend of overweight and obesity across the world. Mm. So so does your role generally involve, I guess, chatting to a, a patient or a client, I'm not sure what terminology you use, um, and, and kind of going through their diet with them and maybe giving them some information and some advice on the things that might be working and um, for them and might be working against them? Is that sort of where you sit? Yeah, definitely. I think the main key thing is that it's always got to be patient-centred or person-centred in the care. 
So certainly how we practice is that the person is expert in their context of their dietary patterns, dietary habits, and would sit and would start by looking at what their current um, uh, eating pattern is like, dietary patterns are like, and then working with them with identifying areas where they would like to make change. And it's not about a whole 180 revamp. It's very much about incremental changes that help those little wins, those successful behaviour change um, over time. So, yeah, so they're working about, um, you know, what changes in their diet that they can make um, and we work with them to support them, whether it's actually then giving them, you know, other uh, food suggestions or some education around nutrition, different aspects like that in a very practical way. And uh, Claire, we haven't heard too much from you yet. Um, I was just wondering, uh, with, with your sort of work, what you, um, I guess your perception, your, your per, uh, perception is of um, weight stigma and and some of the things. I know that you work doing advocacy and, and supporting people. Mm. Um, yeah, what 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 do you have to say about it? So when um, I started working with Health Consumers Council, this was, like I say, the first project that I worked on. And I was coming to it with my own lived experience lens. Um, And I thought I had a pretty good idea of the issue. I was like, yep, we need better advice. We need better information. Um, We did a survey that got over 700, got about 750 responses. We got people to share their written stories. We've held workshops and focus groups. And the thing that transformed my thinking is that actually I've moved to think that weight stigma, and this is not a clinical perspective, but I personally consider weight stigma to be a more harmful um, public health issue than overweight and obesity for many people. Um, Because I think that it is harmful for many of us, we internalise it. So I know um, to the extent I, I do benefit a fair bit from body size privilege, but I personally have not gone to seek healthcare because I have previously sought healthcare, not achieved what I was supposed to achieve, and so therefore not gone back because what's the point? Um, because I haven't achieved the thing I was supposed to achieve. So I personally stopped going to reach out for more support, thinking, well, it's all my own responsibility. So <clears throat> if I have not done it, I just need to try harder. Um, but the other thing is, um, so, and so many people do describe that. I mean, and what Jenny's outlined, you know, we've had some people talk about they've gone along and accompanied a family member for a non-weight related health issue. And they themselves, um, being somebody in a larger body, then gets the attention from the clinician saying, that's great, but did you know you need to lose weight? Now, now some, you know, these are obviously, these are kind of, you know, sto- people's stories, but there's, I've heard enough of them to know that these are not standout experiences. People are regularly experiencing this. And I think, so I think for me, if you like, weight stick, when we heard from consumers and we provided the feedback to the health department and the W Prime Health Alliance into the plan, the first draft of the plan they came back mentioned it, the stigma, but didn't have a high enough profile. But in fact, I do see it as a really fundamental part of healthcare in this area because until 
you can make sure that the healthcare that people receive is non-judgmental, person-centered, tailored to their context, which requires, as Christy just said, a really good understanding of that person's context, then actually people aren't going to get the healthcare that they need. I think for me, the other thing in this space, and this is potentially a bit controversial, um, I have another hat. I'm currently the chairperson of the National Weight Issues Network. I'm involved with the National Obesity Collective. I think for me, over time, I expect that we will see differing definitions of obesity because I think people do have different experiences of it as a disease. For some people, it does impact on health. For other people, other than the potential mental health impacts of weight stigma, which can be significant, and I'm not downplaying, but there may not be other physical health um, outcomes as a result. It's you know, so again, I'm not coming from a clinical perspective, <clears throat> but people's experiences are very different. And there's another group that I think too, for whom weight stigma, I think for me, the over association between um, good nutrition and physical activity and weight loss means that for people who may not believe, either they don't want to lose weight or they don't believe that weight is a concern for them, um, and again, I can speak from personal experience. I know the, the upbringing I had was that those were things you did to lose weight. And if you don't lose weight doing those things, which um, Blake shared with me some research a couple of years ago, which demonstrated just how little sustainable weight loss is from lifestyle changes alone, then you might stop those lifestyle changes. But good nutrition and good physical activity is good for you regardless of the impact that it has on weight. And so for me, I think the other risk of over-associating eat less and move more or eat well and move more with weight loss is the group of people who, for whom weight loss is not a goal, who are not necessarily, you know, choosing good nutrition, good activity. You know, I think, I think we do need to move the message much more towards. And again, when we spoke to consumers, what we heard is, you know, the system, the health system wants to talk about obesity. What generally consumers in the community want to talk about is things that can support health and well-being um, and I think that by focusing on weight and because weight is such a visible health condition um, what we can it's very hard for it not to end up stigmatizing the people who are impacted by weight issues as opposed to I mean again I think if you look at some of the language in the public health messaging around alcohol and tobacco the focus is on the alcohol and the tobacco. It's whereas when you talk about the impact perhaps of food, the focus is often on the individual behavior of the people, not on the, the causes. But I, I get that that's because they are quite a lot more complex perhaps than in those other public health areas. So it's a really nuanced areas. I think the other one final thing I'd say is that from all of the people that we heard from, what really struck me is that people's experiences in this area are very, very diverse. Both mm. what has, you know, and some of the stuff that Blake has spoken about and what Jenny spoke about and Christy, both what people's experiences have been up until the point at which we might be asking them the question, the context that they are within at the time, and what might support that person to move towards a different health situation in future is really very, very context and person specific and so weight stigma really does I think get in the way of really person specific person-centered care. I think I think that's really interesting and there's kind of an association that I want to bring up 
um, in that, and I, you know, I think this is purely community mindset and, and being brought up in a, in a world where uh, uh, what you eat and how you exercise means that you get the goal of weight loss. Like I, I've definitely been brought up in, in that kind of world. Um, so it's very difficult for, for me to see or, or kind of uh, separate that association. So, so when we talk about like eating healthier and doing more exercise, um, what should the, the public goal be rather than weight loss? Because a lot of advertisements and things like that focus on you will lose weight. So what should it be instead? Uh, I think I'll jump in here because I have some very pointed opinions. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, <laughs> That's what we want here. <laughs> yeah. um, the thing is, is that, you know, I, I could spend all day ranting about how, you know, we tell people to eat healthier and exercise and it doesn't help and nobody loses weight. The point is, is that it's not that these things don't work. Anybody that has adhered to, say, quite a strict diet and adopted a rigorous exercise regime has probably seen a change in the scales. But the challenge here is that it's it's trying to encourage people who have probably lived for a very long time not adopting those healthy lifestyle behaviours and then coming along and saying, if you just make these radical changes, your life will be transformed. But you're ignoring, like I said before, all of these underlying issues. It's like if someone visits, say, Christy, for example, or a GP and comes along and says like, oh, look, you know, I really do, you know, I'm worried about my weight. I'd like to lose some weight. And then they, you know, receive some advice about, you know, adjusting their diet and their physical activity. But if they go back to their home environment, let's say, and maybe the rest of the family might also be living with obesity, nobody else may be sort of really adopting healthy lifestyle behaviors. They may live around the corner from a bunch of fast food chains and, then they've got young kids, so they're taking up all their time. And, you know, there's all these other issues in life that interfere with someone's ability to effectively adopt, you know, healthy lifestyle behaviours. So if we're ignoring all of that and just continually giving them that advice, it's going to keep failing. And I think that's what we see is that it's just, it hasn't led to the changes we thought it would, even though intuitively when you think about it, you think, yes, if I cut my diet back to a thousand calories a day and ran a marathon every week, I'm sure you'd probably lose weight, but it's just not, you can't maintain that, you know, so. Yeah, and I'd really love to add to what Blake's mentioning because it's essentially really emphasising these, what we call in the public health nutrition space, food environments, um, and certainly the role that that has impacting what people eat, how people eat, how people access food. Um, and so as a dietitian, I mean, a lot of people automatically think of dietitians who work one-on-one with, you know, patients or, or clients in a, in a um, one-on-one setting. But certainly, and I'm wearing the hat of the public health dietitian side of it, dietitians or nutrition experts who can move into the public health space, into the policymaking space where we understand the complexities around food, that it isn't black and white, there's not good food, bad food, banned food, allowed food, all of that, where it's actually a more complex picture so then we can actually have more of an emphasis away from the individual to these broader food environment, you know, drivers of ill health, whether that is, um, you know, obesity or other health outcomes. So I think I just wanted to emphasise that in the sense that 
you know, there is a growing number of dietitians, nutritionists wanting to really advocate and move into the space of policy and public health because of the recognition that the individualized approach, while important as one component, is not the sole solution. We need to actually have broader change. Um, and that includes the way that public health messaging campaigns are written and how the message around diet shouldn't just be about weight focus, but it should be about your general health, you know. And we certainly see that. I remember seeing that as a dietitian working with people one-on-one, the actual motivation. Sure, they might have come for disease-related uh, concerns or about their weight, but their motivation is energy for the day or to hang, you know, energy to hang out with their kids or not to feel so tired when they wake up. And so those those are the individual motivators really that should actually be the focus and motivation, I think, for the general public perception around nutrition and food as opposed to dieting, weight loss, uh, here's the next shake you can try kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, that's... I was shocked recently when I saw um, ads on TV for the Life Be In It. I assumed Life Be In It was a government advertising, but it's not. It's a doctor who has personally funded it his whole life. And he has nothing to do with the government, with any state department, um, anything like that. So everything he does, he does on his own. But that's concerning that someone can put a health message out there that's his own personal opinion. Now, that was put back on TV about three or four weeks ago, and I was mortified when I saw the ad of Norm sitting in a chair with his skinny wife standing over him saying um, to Norm, saying it's not a disease, you just need to um, eat less and exercise more. So, and he was replaying these things. So I actually tracked him down to talk to him about it. But this just, this is my brain. I'm autistic, by the way. Um, So, but it's annoying that messages are being sent out there by just anyone. Mm. And when, when that happens, it's impossible to make sure it's the right message and it's going to meet the needs of those who actually need it because you have the rest of the community who don't have a weight problem or don't think they have a weight problem and they see something like fat norm sitting on a chair being told not to eat and exercise more. That is the pressure you get from the rest of the public mm. and and this is why these ads have to be done well. They have to be done. I've seen a new ad. I think it's Juniper. It's a medical centre that's doing an ad at the moment. It's actually a really good ad. Uh, it wouldn't make me go to them. But, <laughs> but <laughs> the way they speak about obesity and being overweight is lovely. It's a really positive mm. um, way of talking to the public. And I'd love to see the government take hold of that. I mean, Norm could be a hero, but the man who developed him isn't interested in changing that. I spoke to him about it said, why can't we change the ad slightly? Because they, they were so memorable. Everyone knows the life being in it from the 70s and 80s. They all loved it. And they were incredible ads. But um, he has no intentions of changing them, so we'll have to move forward and move on to something else. But, yeah, so people can advertise anything they want. It's a real danger of yeah. you're not going to be able to assist the people that need it. Yeah. I, I remember that. And I, I think if ads. I can add... Oh, sorry, go on, uh, no, I was just going to say I remember those ads from the 80s and I was going to 
Um, say we've actually had the Cancer Council on the podcast before talking about their Live Lighter campaign. And I was going to get your guys' thoughts on that because they kind of said to us that they go out of their way to try and consult with various groups and, you know, their target audience, et cetera. So, yeah, carry on, please, Claire. Oh, I was just going to say about the life being it. Um, certainly when one of the first consumer groups that we got together, people talked about that. So to go to your question, Courtney, about what the messages could be about, I think that, and again, I wasn't here in Australia when those ads were out on the first time, but I did see them more recently when Jenny highlighted them. Um, I think those kind of concepts around, you know, life be in it, you know, get involved, get involved in your local community. Um, I, I think to, for me, it's only been in recent years, really, that I've fully understood the importance of physical activity for almost every aspect of health, um, brain health, metabolic health, heart health, um, everything. And, and as I understand it, it's one of the factors that makes the biggest difference to the quality of life we're likely to have as we age. Um, and again, for me, the over-association with it and weight loss, I think, really detracts from the potential benefits of us all just becoming just a little bit more active. Um, and I know it's certainly something I sort of keep in the forefront of my mind. Um, but with regards to the Live Lighter campaign, I think certainly, again, I've been here in Australia for 16 years and I've seen an evolution in us in those uh, campaigns over time. I think it's really welcoming now that there's a, a much um, clearer focus on um, perhaps the particular, you know, types of food and targeting the type of food. Perhaps, you know, like I was saying before, often the advertising hasn't always been around food in the way that it might be focused on alcohol or tobacco, the harms from those. So I think there has been an interesting and welcome move towards more focus on the harms of particular types of food. But again, Christy, from your point of view, I'd be really interested in others. I mean, I know, again, the nuance around no food is bad food, um, because I think the other thing that we need to just you know, potentially bring into this space is the importance. And again, the, the slightly complex, complex relationship in this space between any public health messaging around um, weight management. And this, again, is why I think weight stigma should be the focus um, is um, is the relationship with potential for eating disorders. Um, and again, I think that's becoming much more widely understood um, that particularly, you know, in child, childhood and adolescence, that there is an increased possibility that a focus on restricting food intakes or, you know, bad foods, good foods can, can lead to an over focus on some of that. Um, and so, again, I think that's, you know, it's another really important part of the message and and again um perhaps if we we might come on to talk about it later but I, what i do want to say is that what became really clear to me in the work that we've been doing is that there is also um there's often a conflation of overweight and obesity and i think what became really clear from the conversations i've been privileged to have with jenny and others is that Obviously, weight can be on a spectrum. Some people who, as Blake highlighted before, might have been living in larger bodies for some considerable time, have done lots of things. The context hasn't necessarily always been within their gift to change, um, have, have been exposed to and harmed by weight stigma that they've experienced in social setting as, as well as in clinical setting. Um, that is quite a different experience to somebody perhaps who has been of a so-called healthy weight, whatever that is for them, over, and then puts on a few extra kilos, perhaps due to a life event or perhaps because of a of an, you know something to do with age. 
and again, this is why I think we need to get much more nuanced about what we are talking about when we're talking about overweight and obesity. And I think weight stigma is the thing that gets in the way of us being able to talk about that in a more nuanced way. Because I think that we do need better access. There are increasing evidence-based treatments, which are not lifestyle-based. Um, and again, I'm not a clinician, so I can't comment on them. But I do know that you know we're seeing there are treatments that people can have access to, but they're not wide. They're not often widely available. And I think, for example, I would be interested to know, and I don't know, Blake, if your research has ever looked into this, but whether or not weight stigma at the highest levels of decision making means that some treatments get more public funding than others um, because of the sense that, you know, I often hear, for example, bariatric surgery is often talked about, oh, yes, but that's a, that's the last resort. That's the last resort. And again, I keep saying I'm not clinical, but my non-clinical lens on the literature is that for some people that might be true, but for other people it might be an evidence-based treatment that is right for that person at a much earlier stage than might be generally understood in the public. So again, I think weight stigma is the thing that gets in the way of us having a really evidence-based, nuanced conversation about what are the treatment options, what does it look like, who can you get treatment from, what might be right for you, and also the how long you might be working with a clinical team in order to find something that helps you decide on your health goals and achieve your health goals, whatever those are for you. Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying, Claire. I think I just view weight stigma and weight bias as just it's an enormous barrier to any sort of change that we're trying to achieve. So until we start to address the presence, particularly of weight bias in healthcare professionals, then it's just going to get in the way. Um, you know, I have a, one of my PhD students just last week published their first paper which looked at weight bias in healthcare students. So we've surveyed over 900 students across 39 Australian universities. And we basically found, as you would expect, that there is a weight bias in the healthcare students across pretty much all of the healthcare disciplines. So we decided to look at the students because they are going to be the next generation of healthcare professionals in this country. So I think until we start to work out, okay, we've established that the weight bias exists, um, but now what can we actually do to try and change these attitudes? Because unless we start doing that, people are going to be visiting their GP or their specialist and they're still going to be feeling stigmatised and then they're going to want to disengage with the healthcare system. And I think like Jenny has mentioned before is that that can have you know disastrous impacts on your health. You know, if you aren't visiting your healthcare professional and you have a serious health concern that goes you know ignored essentially for years, the consequences of that can be really dire. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not familiar specifically with whether sort of at the, the higher levels of the healthcare industry, where, whether there's the weight bias exists, but that sounds like another great project for a future PhD student. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'll probably leave here today with a whole bunch of research ideas. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, and I mean, I was thinking as well when we were talking about the public health campaigns about in my previous position, I was actually working with Cancer Council WA on some of their public health campaigns that they run here in WA. Um, and, I mean, the, the, a lot of the campaigns have existed for quite a long time. And I think they are, because most of them are government funded, I think they're sort of funded because they continue to promote a similar message. 
whether or not that message is actually leading to much behavior change in the population. Because I do wonder when you sort of see, you know, you see the Live Lighter campaign or some of the campaigns come on TV and you think, is anybody seeing that for the first time and going, oh, if I just ate more fruit and vegetables, my life would be better. Like everyone knows that now, you know what I mean? Like it's not new information. So I do wonder whether there needs to be quite a significant update to a lot of these public health campaigns if we're wanting to see change because it's almost like if we continue to just roll out a slightly different version of the same message for the next 10 years, aren't we going to not really see any change for the next 10 years? Like that's, yeah, that's what I think when I see a lot of the campaigns. What what would you change it to, Blake? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I'm probably <laughs> awfully critical, but I'm not a public health researcher either. So I should have, I should have premised that point at the start. <laughs> not my area of expertise. Um, but yeah, I guess more as a consumer, I kind of see them and I think, oh, I don't know if this is working, but yeah. I think mm. to catch the public's attention, you need a hero. So in his own way, Norm is a hero. So if you have the hero there, you have the catchy tune, and then you can bring up the different messages you need to tell people. Um, with obesity, I absolutely agree with Claire saying there's different people on different spectrum. So I'm obviously at the top of it. I'm now fully obese. Um, my mobility problems were actually caused by other issues, by um, failed operations with other problems. Um, but when doctors see me, they always think it's due to my um, obesity. Not, And they literally say to me, I don't want to know your history. I have heard that sentence. I've heard enough sad stories. We need to move on. What are we going to do? But by that person not understanding my history, they're not understanding where the obesity came from, and you can't address it unless you know why I'm in the space I'm in. So if I present somewhere and or first thing that happens when I go to emergency is they take a sample of my blood for diabetes. I'm not diabetic. And it annoys me. They say we do it to everyone. And I can look around that room and no one else has had that prick test except for me for diabetes. So already I know I'm being isolated from everybody else. And when I say, oh, my foot hurts, they won't be looking at my foot. They'll be saying, have you got a heart condition? Have you got this? They're immediately thinking of conditions someone who's obese is having. And I'm trying to say, I got stung by a wasp in my foot. Can we look at my foot? <laughs> you know. And I said, it's been swollen now for two weeks and won't go down. It's really painful. Oh, are you sure you don't have any heart conditions or anything else? And it just, it amazes me how you are ignored. So when that wasping happened and I went on for three months going to different hospitals trying to get it treated, I ended up with two years of health complications. I ended up getting bursitis, tendonitis um, in my other foot because I was putting pressure on it for not being able to walk on the foot with the wasping in it. And I, apparently I'd had an allergic reaction and this is why everything blew up. Um so now I've got problems with my feet, which I never had before the wasping. If they had given me antihistamines um, and antibiotics because I had an infection from it and everything, my doctor said to me, you would have been fine in two weeks. 
you would not have got all those other health complications. He said, which now people are blaming for your weight, when in reality it all started from a wasting. So how do you get that communication across from someone who's obese talking to those in power and authority who won't listen? Mm. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear of your experience there, Jenny. Um, sorry, um, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry I'm talking too much. But. No, you're not at all. That's why you're here. <laughs> um, I think it's, a, it's yeah. a really powerful message because they're so non-associated at all. Like yeah. it's, it's crazy that, that that happened and it went on for two years. Um, and I think it really, it does, that story highlights um, the need for change in um, health practitioners understanding the focus of the visit for the problem and then understanding the history as well as a after after understanding what the first problem is. I, yeah, I think it's a really, really powerful message. Yeah. These are emergency. This isn't just a GP. My GP was happy. He, he told me to go to emergency <laughs> five times. And in the end, I got wheeled out on the actual emergency bed and told to get off on the curb. And the police ended up having to take me home. I never swore. I never yelled. I just asked to be treated. Mm. I spent oh. eight hours with no food, water or anything in that emergency room and that's how I got treated. And the consultant said to me, well, if you lost weight, that would be a good help. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's going to stop all those wasps. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yes, it's obviously a quick, a quick response too. Mm. Um, I, I think the other thing um, that I have heard many people talk about is, um, and, and Jenny highlighted it a bit there, I think is how somebody can respond to weight stigma when they experience it. I think that certainly my individual experience and from what I've heard from some other people, I'm just going to pause briefly. There is some work happening at my house on the roof and I don't know if you're picking it up in the microphone. I am really sorry. That was not yeah. intended. No, 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 it's it all good. I yeah. can't, can't hear it. it. Okay, all good. Can't hear it. Okay, good. Yeah. So in terms of how people can respond when they experience weight stigma, I think first of all, for me, there's something about highlighting to the community that it is a thing and they don't have to accept it. Um, that it is okay to to seek out other healthcare professionals or to say that, you know, so for me, what drives me in my work is to try and make sure that people in the community who might be impacted by weight issues, who might be seeking healthcare, that they can know what they can and cannot, or what they what they are able to say, this is not appropriate. So that we are empowering people to understand that there is a potential range of treatments, that not all treatments are right for everybody, and that the ideal is to find a health professional who's able to be non-judgmental, but supportive to you in your context. Um, I think the other thing is that through groups like Health Consumers Council and the Weight Issues Network, we're starting to see a much stronger patient advocacy voice. So where people like Jenny, who has been a very strong advocate for herself and others over the years, are being um, joined by other people who are coming forward to say, oh, hang on. I don't need to apologise. This isn't all down to me. I can, in fact, say, oh, actually, I have as much right to healthcare as everybody else. And there are a range of options. And here's how I go about it. And so I guess I would encourage if there's people listening who might be impacted themselves. I, I think it's really important that we see this from a health rights issue, that, that, that everybody has a right to, to 
good quality, affordable, accessible healthcare. And people impacted by weight issues and living with obesity are the same. And that there are groups where people can connect with others who are also fighting, if you like, um, advocating for these rights to be understood and to be met. Because, I mean, Jenny's comments just remind me of another person that I'd heard from another state talking about how, you know, like, and I can only imagine how much people need to feel armoured because you kind of have to really gird yourself mm. to go into healthcare settings. In that power dynamic, you're going because you want healthcare, you're possibly feeling a little more vulnerable than you might otherwise. Um, and not only do you ha have to hope that you're going to be getting the right healthcare, if you're also experiencing weight stigma, then the first thing is you need to tackle the weight stigma so that you can get to the healthcare that you've gone to seek. And, and the extra weight, if you like, that that puts on people as they are seeking care um, is something that, um, like I say, I would, I'd like us, uh, the part of wanting to do this was to, you know, to try and keep advocating for change because I think um, there's a lot of research that talks about how prevalent weight stigma is, what weight stigma looks like, the impact of weight stigma, what I have yet to see much of is what can you do about it? How can it be tackled? And I do think that it's very difficult because we talk a lot about empowering patients. A lot of patients are pretty empowered. But when you, when you add in a layer of the societal shame and blame and judgment, it, you have to be a particularly um, particular type of person to be able to say, I am going to move past all of those judgments and I'm going to, if you like, demand what I am entitled to, which is good quality health care. Um, but I do think that, the, that one of the ways that we're going to crack it is by strengthening the voice of people with lived experience and creating the conditions where we can have these kind of conversations with Jenny, Blake, myself and others to be able to speak up so that that will hopefully encourage other people to say, oh, actually, I could perhaps speak up about this too. This isn't my fault and I can, I can expect something different. And here's how I can find out about it. Mm. It's it seems like there's an underlying issue here that that actually spans across a range of medical disciplines, and that's doctors not appreciating that patients are often the best expert about their own health conditions because they're the ones living with it. And if you sit down and speak to them for a, a few minutes and ask them to give you some information about what they're going through, they'll often have the solution in there somewhere. Um, but there's this sort of paternalistic kind of um, attitude a lot of the time and we see it in mental health care settings as well um, a lot in, in the work I do um, and you know alcohol and other drug settings etc and it's it's yeah, it's almost like we need to re-educate some of the healthcare professionals about you know the steps they should take and the order they should take those steps in and they might get to the solution a bit quicker that way Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, as I mentioned before, I have one of my PhD students now. We're actually meeting this afternoon to talk about um, her next study, which would be an intervention to address the weight bias in healthcare students. So we'll talk about sort of how to design that and see what we can do. But I think one of the – there's two approaches that need to be taken, like Claire's mentioning here, is that there's sort of like the bottom-up approach where it's the people with the lived experience that if they can – try and go into these conversations with healthcare professionals and really advocate for themselves and um, try and prevent the impact of the weight bias into like interfering with the clinical setting. 
But that can be really difficult to do. You know, I know myself, you know, when I go into a clinical setting, you know, I'm not going to be judged to do with weight bias or weight stigma in any way, but I still feel like there's a power dynamic and you're still more likely just to sit there and listen to everything the doctor has to say and just walk away with the script and follow all their orders. Like, so if you're already feeling like somebody who's judged by society because of their weight, when you go into that setting, it's very, very hard to speak up. Um, so I think some of the research now is showing us that when we're trying to, I guess, re-educate healthcare professionals about obesity, it is the best approach is to talk about it as a disease. And I have a colleague over in the UK, um, Associate Professor Stuart Flint, and he does research with or sort of runs um, sort of training sessions with healthcare professionals where he basically compares obesity with cancer. And he basically says, like, he'll show them, like, a fake made-up campaign and uses the words that are used to describe obesity but uses it with cancer. And it's a really powerful demonstration of how stigmatising a lot of the, the terminology is in the healthcare setting about obesity because you would never speak about cancer the same way. And I think using these sorts of tasks with healthcare professionals might begin, because they obviously understand cancer very well, so now they need to start thinking, it's like, oh, okay, I can sort of see now if I'm talking to somebody with overweight and obesity and I'm speaking about it like this, I'm going to be making them feel really stigmatized because I would never do that with someone who has lung cancer, for example. So there's a lot of, I guess, re-education that needs to occur, but hopefully, yeah, the future research coming out now is going to give us some promising results. The interesting thing you say about that with the cancer, I recently went to Sir Charles Gardner to talk about um, a bariatric operation. Now, I've been on a wait list for 10 years with Joondal Up. It just hasn't happened. And we're actually in the same department as the cancer department. So one of the things the surgeon said to me was, well, because this is a cancer department, of course they come first. Now, it was amazing. He was a really nice surgeon, really nice person. And I really do admire him a lot. But the words that were coming out of his mouth, and I do not blame him at all, um, he was another one that said to me, I'm not here to listen to your history or your sad stories. Everyone's got those. He was another one who went on about um, you have to lose 10% of your body weight. There's no support. You have to do it yourself. If you put one kilo on during the program, you'll be removed from it. Um, so... He didn't mean it in any sort of way attacking me or it wasn't personalised. It's what he would tell all his patients. I watched that waiting room. Most of them were filled with cancer patients. There was only a few bariatric people there, um, you know, and they walked out. They walked in happy and honestly every one of them walked out almost in tears after um, seeing whoever it was about the bariatric uh, program. So that says in itself a huge um, attitude that the health department has towards us. I was also told that Sir Charles Gardner only takes in um, the patients that um, have either complications or things have gone wrong and uh, we're not really here for you. And I think that so, ties into the the idea that bariatric surgery is a last resort. So I, I know a few people that have also had that, um, that procedure, one of them, also had cancer um, and, yeah, the differences in treatment and the the need for them to lose weight in order to get their cancer treatment as well as to get the bariatric 
surgery was fascinating to kind of listen to but it's yeah there's a huge impact on on mental health because you have to show the change before you can get the treatment Mm. which is an interesting choice um of of order in when you're trying to get treatment for diseases i actually don't think we should go to the surgeon i want to do what claire says have met um health hubs out in the suburbs Mm. that can address us and support us and get us to a point that, yes, we're at the right place now, we can't go any further, bariatric is the thing for you. If it's not, I mean, I'd rather not go and have bariatric, I'm telling you now. But if it is the way to go, once we've reached our goals with that support, this um, health hub, then we can not waste the surgeon's time and say, well, we've met all these goals, we've achieved this, Mm. this is where we know. And the other thing was, it was a two-year, three-year wait list for the surgeon. So I, I said to him, so if I lose all this weight and you approve it, I still have to keep that weight off for three years until the surgery. And he said yes. Hmm. And, yeah, also and that's got what a, we... They've got a cutoff at 55 years old. And hmm. I'm 53 now because I've waited 10 years. So hmm. they'll basically push it over 55 and I won't get the operation. Yeah, and it's the long-term weight loss maintenance that's very difficult that's for right. most people. It's, you know, it's not it's not about, oh, you know, yeah, I could lose 5, 10 kilos, but it's like, okay, how do I keep that off now for the next 5, 10 years? Like that's the yeah. hard part, you know. So clearly the current system that's set up is just not going to, you know, encourage people or facilitate success. Yeah. Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have a minute and enjoy the conversations we bring you, It'd be great if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a quick rating and review. Not only do we love to get your feedback, but it also helps other people to find us. Thank you. And now back to the show. I think this kind of leads nicely into the idea of um, how weight stigma and and weight management can be brought into to policy and practice. So, Jenny, you brought up the idea of health hubs in, in the community, um, and I think that, that would be a really great idea that would not only be cost-effective because you could be reducing bariatric surgery and things like that, but it's also empowering communities um, and improving mental health by having these hubs and these communities in, in the suburbs. Um, would there be any other suggestions to improve the policy and practice around healthcare professionals or, or within the public health field that you guys would Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the spiders, the amount of medical clinics I'm sent to, and because I have limited walking um, due to a number of reasons, um, I find walking 100 metres nearly impossible these days and I need to rest. They put them in buildings with no, we have stairs. Um, they have seats which have arms on them which I can't fit into and then I have to ask them and they don't have scales or they don't have um pressure cuffs or, you know, all the stupid little resources just don't cost much. They don't have. Um, they send us to King Edward when you're overweight and pregnant, but they don't have big gowns. You go there, they know you're overweight and they don't have a big enough gown for you or they don't have pressure cuffs that fit you or scales that can weigh you. And, I mean, scales cost $40 at Target and they weigh up to 250 kilos. So I can't think why it's a big deal and why they struggle with it. But, yeah, and these hubs need to be easy access. So a lot of people who are overweight also have pain management issues and limited mobility. They've got to make it easy access for us. We've got to be able to get in there and we've got to have the support 
I find if someone sees me once a week for five minutes, has a little chat with me, weighs me in, I do so much better than if I get told, oh, the nurse isn't available today, come back another week. Mm-hmm. Um, already I'm feeling less of a person and unimportant to the health system. Um, Christy, from your expect, uh, your perspective, is, is that similar mm-hmm. in that in with patients or clients that, that come regularly, you're more likely to see some improvement in, in mental health and, and behaviours? In, for, in terms of cl- from a clinical care perspective, mm. do you mean? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly um, as a dietitian, you can't like to just see someone once off again is not going to be sufficient right or enough um certainly if if they are able to consistently come to more sessions together or you're able to to have those points of contact i guess what they say more frequently then yes but obviously whether someone can actually then attend consistently is depending on so many other factors is what jenny had had mentioned so um you know if if we're able to break down or reduce those barriers to healthcare, um, then that would actually support the person's outcomes as well. And so obviously addressing weight stigma in the healthcare system as a barrier is something that is, would be really important and is necessary based on all the discussions we've said today. Um, I think something that I'd like to chip in is that certainly I think in terms of policy and practice, um, we have the the evidence is strong, I think, you know, and it continues to grow, I think, with what Blake was sharing with his PhD student, uh, research, um, showing how pervasive, I think, weight stigma is even in uh, the healthcare professions. And just really flagging that awareness that um, we need to catch the next generation of healthcare professionals to really start to have that um, hopefully ripple effect to change, therefore, practice and the way policy is written in the future, I mean, you know, it's not that it's too late for like the older, higher up consultants, but maybe in a way it might be, do you know what I mean? And I think we need to emphasize our, our efforts on the upcoming doctors, dietitians, etc. I know that, um, you know, certainly I think Curtin is like wanting to incorporate uh, some stigma training, for example, in their dietitians course. Um, but I think in that sense, it's also a reason why we did the work when I was based at East Metro Health Service around the communications guide around shift because that was focused around, um, I guess, the prompt for it was to build how do we actually communicate about obesity in a non-stigmatising way. And whilst it was first focused on oh, we, the media, like the journalists, we need to change them, when the research says actually healthcare systems are one of the top perpetuators of weight stigma, we were like, well, we need to get sorted first, the way that we communicate, whether it's in the way that we talk about it or write policy, the way that um, we do training with healthcare professions, we need to actually have that self-reflection and start to uh, look at ways that we can actually change our practice first. Um, so, yeah, so I think that there are, and certainly um, Blake mentioned Stuart Flint, and I think the UK has some fantastic resources that they've developed and training modules that we could look at embedding into, um, you know, professional development programs with with uh, health professionals in training programs, you know, adapting some of those tools uh, for the Australian context. And, and I think if I could just offer one thing too, 
to then go, you know, to come out even further. When you think about the fact that the community, when you ask people, you know, we're, we're coming at health through a weight, through a lens of weight, people do very much want to talk about the holistic, the more holistic sense of health and well-being. I think that you're again. I'm aware of it in the UK. I think there's some of it happening in in Australia. You know, things like social prescribing, which is not a phrase I like because it medicalizes something that I don't think needs to be medicalized as much. But it's um, you know, recognizing the, the the relationship between the more formal and the informal things in our lives that help us stay well and healthy. That could be strong connections with our neighbors or our families. It could be a park close by where you can go for a walk and feel safe. Um, I think that I know that in the UK, you know, there's there's some examples of what they call, I think, community power, where they're talking about communities creating health in their environment, which is inclusive of people, of all body sizes, disabilities, and financial circumstances. Um, which might go some way to, I think, potentially addressing, you know, some of those issues that always get mentioned in preventive health strategies. Oh, we need to tackle the social determinants. We need to tackle the social determinants. But in the meantime, what we're going to do is we're going to do this advertising campaign over here because it's something we can do. I mean, I heard somebody talk at one conference. It's a phrase I've used a lot, but it's not my phrase. I heard somebody else say it, is that in this space, we often do what can be done, but it's time to do what needs to be done um, and I think for me, the answer in that space is more deliberative conversations like this with people with different perspectives around a table, genuinely considered as partners. You know, as Christy talked about in that clinical setting, you know, the, the person is understood to be the expert in their context. And then you marry that with clinical expertise. And that is a winning combination. If you make that on a bigger scale, where you've got communities that are the experts in their community context, with researchers who can help you make the case for and you can evaluate things, with funders who can then, you know, reshape um, some of the conditions that we might be operating in. Um, I think over time, but I do think that sometimes the voice that's missing in this space is the voice of community, in particular the voice of people with lived experience or particular health conditions. Again, one final thing at Health Consumers Council, what I, I have had the, the chance to observe is that um, for many in our community, our health system and health services are great and outstanding, actually, but there is a sizable group of people where there is a, there's multiple levels of exclusion people who are find it, you know, are excluded from health systems, excluded from education systems, excluded from local community settings for all sorts of reasons. And and that and and but we design services for the majority. I think we need to have for more equitable um health outcomes, we need to have more people who experience health inequities at the table, deciding and designing health settings and health interventions and health environments because I think um, then we'll get a much more inclusive and I hope you know a system that does respond and actually starts to tackle some of those sorts of determinants. I think that's a really great summary of where we're at and where we need to be um, and yeah it's it's I think that uh, the health the health system is progressing more towards co-design with consumers um, to, you know, and the Health Consumers Council plays a huge part in that, as do other uh, advocacy groups and peak Mm. bodies. Um, 
but yeah, I think it's a common theme across health and, and other services. Um, but yeah, obviously there's a long way to go just mm-hmm. from the stuff we've heard today. Um, yeah. So I wanted to um, just get your views on something because obviously the, the media has a bit of a role to play in this as well. And I think the fact that we're having this conversation and that hopefully this will lead on to more conversations kind of in the public eye. Um, and this is obviously going <laughs> slightly off track, but I noticed that um, at the Oscars, one of the films that got awarded was a film about a guy that was that was obese. Um, Brendan Fraser won the, the Best Actor Oscar. And I know that he's actually been talking about this issue because he obviously played that character. Just wanted to hear get, get your reactions to that, and, and whether you think that something like that could could help get these messages out there. I mean, the title of the film is probably somewhat stigmatizing. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, so I'm not sure, but I guess that's Hollywood. So on the one hand, they're trying to probably advocate for a particular message, but they're also trying to sell tickets. So. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think I've I haven't seen the film myself, but I've seen a lot of the interviews and things that he's done around it because it's obviously related to the the research that I do. And I think, I mean, if people with that size of a platform, if they can start raising awareness and talking about these issues, I mean, it's probably going to have a lot more impact than some of the studies that I publish in journal articles that no one reads. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, I think overall it's a good thing. Um, and if, yeah, if more people can raise awareness around kind of the humanity, I think, related to obesity, um, I think that's really important. So, yeah. I think Magna really helped quite a bit with her four-part theories, um, the things she talked about, and all the battles she fought to get that series out was amazing. Um, but, yeah, we need more people in the eye of the media that are willing to speak, uh, who have suffered. So a lot of them wouldn't have suffered the same um, problems because they have enough money to pay privately to just get services. We're talking about people like myself who can't work anymore. I'm on a pension looking after my son. Um, I'm stuck with what the health government's health system has and it fails me. Mm. Um, and I, I agree. So I have seen the film. I, I, I knew that there'd be a lot of discussion about it and I wanted to see it. It's certainly a pretty intense film, I would say. It's got a lot to say about um, relationships and, and a range of things. And I agree with Blake that the more we're seeing this in the public eye and being able to have time for nuanced discussions like this, what's been really heartening is that we are starting to see, I think, a bit more balanced reporting on this issue. So again, with my Weight Issues Network chairperson hat on, we have been approached by some of the big media outlets, um, the Australian, SBS, ABC, um, to seek lived experience perspectives on this issue in a much more nuanced way than we might have seen in the past. So I've been really encouraged um, by the fact that we're seeing more of these messages in the public domain. And like Jenny, I agree that I think that the more we can see people who are supported and the conditions are created where people are willing to come forward and say, this is my experience. And um, and so that that will therefore draw others. And eventually, I, I, you know, because, I know, you know, it's almost flippant, but sometimes I think, you know, um, there are, there's a huge gap 
between the availability of services and the need for services, like person-centered treatment, evidence-based services. Um, and if this, I do sometimes think if this was another patient group, there would be people marching on parliament, you know, like where there would be people marching in the street about this. But this, for, for lots of good reasons, um, this cohort of consumers are um, not always likely to do that. Um, and so I think the more we can have these conversations in the public domain and, you know, and I think, yeah, a huge testament to Blake and Jenny and the others, other consumers who have done this through Health Consumers Council and the Weight Issues Network who are putting their heads above the parapet and talking about this in a way that I hope encourages more people to start to come forward to say that, um, that, that you know, that there's, that, that, that we have a right, they have, that we have a right to something different and you're not carrying this... There was um, World Obesity Day was just at the start of the month and one of the themes, they had conversation cards and one of the conversation cards was um, it's time to move from me to we, you know, and I think that is something that I, I, I would like to advocate for is that this is started to be understood. This isn't, and it's always, again, it's nuanced because you don't want to take away individual agency. Of course, I can make choices within the choices available to me. I can make some choices that will positively impact on my health. So this isn't about saying that we don't have agency over some aspects of our health, but it is about saying that not everybody has agency over. If you can't, if you live in the Kimberley and you can't access fresh fruit, then the idea about saying, you know, get two and five is, <laughs> is um, you know, it's not necessarily going to be something as Blake and Christy have both spoke about, something that's in your power. But for some people, it might be. Um, but the other person that I think is in the public domain that I think might help this conversation is obviously the appointment of Taryn Bramfit, uh, Bramfit sorry, as Australian of the Year um, with a focus on her uh, body acceptance, body positivity message. And again, um, I think that's, I hope that we will continue to have nuanced conversations that people can see themselves in and feel able to speak up and come forward. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah. And, you know, other popular media figures like Lizzo as well are very, I think, very effective in that yeah, space Yeah, I, I was going to bring up um, Jamila Jamil and, and her work in body positivity as well. Um, mm. I think, yeah, she's, mm. she's a very important um, person, particularly for younger generations. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm just wary that we've um, probably exhausted our time, um, but it's been great to hear from all of you and I, I hope you've managed to, to say what you wanted to say in, in the time that we've got. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll be able to revisit this in a future episode and, and see what's changed since we last spoke. Um, that would be great to hear if we have made progress, you know, in the, in the coming months and years. Can yeah. I just uh, add in something? Yes. Thought? Um, I think certainly maybe for the listeners or whoever might be listening is that I think to not negate that you are also an advocate in the conversations that you might have with your friends you know, I think for those who listen to the, this podcast, if it's made you think or maybe you didn't know about weight stigma before but now have a bit of an awareness, you know, I think there's also power in you um, kind of being someone in a voice of, of helping others to become more aware of this, this issue as well because I think sometimes it's just not even on people's radar, right, if they haven't heard about it. So, you know, conversation at the barbecue, dinner table, <laughs> You know, it will come up. I think once you're aware of weight stigma as an issue, you realise uh, you can't not see it if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, I would just really encourage the listeners as well that you also have as a, a role 
um, as advocates or activists to kind of bring about this change. Yeah, I definitely agree with Christy, just to say as well as that it wasn't until some of the research I published got media attention that my family members were like, oh, is that the research that you do? <laughs> so, they were like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's an important problem. I was like, oh, I don't think anybody even knows what I do. <laughs> you, know, you know, like I, I have a feeling a lot of researchers experience that because I've also experienced yeah. that. It's like, oh, oh that's what you All right, yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And, and again on that I think I've, I've done the plug already but if you want to speak up and you want to be part of a movement that is trying to make change then um, in Western Australia Health Consumers Council is one place and at a national level there's the Weight Issues Network and we can send you the links if that's something that you put in show notes or something Yeah like we'll that. definitely put that in the show notes thanks yeah. Claire. Um, I think that's a great note to finish on um, but yeah thanks everyone for joining us and um, yeah we'll Look forward to tracking your progress and seeing how things develop as, as we go on. And that was our chat with Jenny, Blake, Claire and Christy, uh, all people with some level of expertise on weight stigma. Yeah, really, really fascinating conversation, I think. Um, I knew that weight stigma was a thing. Um, I didn't know there was a word for it, though. So I, I knew it was a thing mainly because I have a number of family and, and friends that are overweight and obese, and I've heard their stories before, and it just sometimes just seems a bit ridiculous what they have to go through. Um, for example, I, I know someone who uh, hasn't been able to get a job because of their weight um, and not because it stops them from doing anything. It's just purely they're fat. So Obviously, they can't do this job when they can. Uh, so it's it's really interesting to hear the the research side of things as well as the advocacy side of things for weight stigma as well as weight management. And I think um, the guests that we had on today really highlight the key messages associated with these two areas. Yeah, no, I think it was it was a really well constructed conversation even though we it was hard to plan because we had so many guests on at the same time i feel like they they sort of asked and answered a lot of the questions themselves without us really having to do too much and covered so many mm -hmm. different aspects well, honestly of the best thing for podcasts yeah yeah, yeah um, definitely yeah, get, good for like podcast hosts to really um to let them talk <laughs> yeah get, get, Makes great our job experts, easy. get great experts on <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, and look, exactly. and I think, you know, Claire, uh, Claire in particular is a professional advocate. So I think she's used to illuminating these issues in a, in a, um, in a thoughtful way and, you know, asking the right questions and making sure that there's good answers to those questions. Um, and then obviously Jenny, you know, uh, lived experience expert, you know, was really eloquent in how she kind of conveyed her experience and where the gaps are in the system currently and what's needed. And even just using personal examples about things that she's gone through and that, um, you know, how she's been treated by doctors and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, the, the ridiculous wait time she's had for a procedure, you know, that's astounding to me that in this day and age that there are people on waiting lists for that long for something that is potentially life-changing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. amazing. But um, 
you know, yeah. and it was really interesting to hear Christy's perspective as well as a dietitian and, you know, the sort of role that they play and how they're part of kind of an ecosystem of, of professionals and they, they play a specific and fairly important role, but they need to have an understanding of the circumstances and the context around people's um, health issues and psychology and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and obviously, you know, Blake is, is publishing on this topic and, you know, has the lived experience background as well. Um, but yeah, just not an area of, of work that I really knew too much about. And obviously now I'm going to be a lot more aware of it going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it was great to have such a mix of, of people with the research side of things, the more clinical side of things, advocate and um, the professional. Um, and yeah, I do think that, that Christian Blake brought quite a, um, a, a good perspective, uh, in particular the research side of things where they're actually trying to find interventions for weight stigma. Um, mm. which sounds really exciting and really interesting. Um, so, yeah, I look forward to seeing um, what all four of them do next. Yeah, and <clears throat> I think we genu- genuinely, as a podcast, will revisit the topic, you know, in, in a future episode to see what progress has been made. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, where can people find us if they want to comment okay, on this episode? so or- if you... Yeah, if you want to have a chat with us about about what we've talked about in this podcast or any of our other podcasts, you can email us, meaningofhealthatoutlook.com. You can tweet us, health means what, uh, and you can contact us on Facebook, Meaning of Health Podcast. Um, and, oh, we have an Instagram as well. Um, what's our Instagram doing? thing? Now you've put me on the <laughs> I've spot. got to find what the, the tag is. Oh, I know. I know. I'm not prepared. I think it could be a uh, health means what as well. I think it is health means what. Anyway, you'll see our new logo. Um, so you'll know, you'll know it's us with the, the light bulb and, and headphones. Uh, yeah. Health means what um, on uh, Instagram. So we'll we'll try and start posting some things on there too. But you can always contact us through the messages on Instagram too. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, we look forward to bringing you another fascinating episode. And uh, yeah, we hope you enjoyed this one and we look forward to speaking with you all again soon. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Weber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.